Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. As we come this morning to the significance of Jesus being the Melchizedekian priest, I want to just quickly go through just the flow of thought in the book of Hebrews and what the author has been saying so far. The author starts by saying God has spoken his final word, his final revelation in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And this Jesus is greater than even the greatest beings that we can think of, the angelic beings. In fact, he is God and he is going to fulfill all that God has spoken of till now. And then he goes on to say that therefore we must pay closer attention to Jesus and his word. Why? Because he says it's not to angels that the world to come has been subjected, but it is to Jesus Christ, the world that is to come, is going to be subjected to. And, we, and then the author argues, and therefore that's why Christ was made like one of us. He took on flesh. Because ultimately the purpose for man was to rule and reign over the earth, and that will be accomplished by Jesus, the God-man. And then ultimately he says, Jesus being a man is not an inferior thing because this is what Jesus is accomplishing. And in fact, he was made like us, his brothers, to be our great high priest, to represent man before God. And then in chapter 3, the author goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, consider Jesus, the one who sent from God, the apostle and the high priest of our confession." Consider Jesus, he says, one who is even greater than Moses. Why? Because Moses was simply a servant in the house of God, but Jesus is God himself. He is the one who has, in fact, created that house of God. And so then the author issues another warning saying, therefore, if you hear his voice about Jesus being the final revelation, do not harden your heart. Don't be like the wilderness generation of Israelites who heard the promises of God, who heard the good news from God, and yet they hardened their heart and they did not enter the promised land. And by implication he makes, therefore, brothers and sisters, similarly do not harden your heart toward Jesus, but trust in him and hold on to him and you can be assured that you will enter God's promised eternal rest, which is what the land of Canaan was pointing to. And then he goes on to say, now what we have is a high priest who has gone into the holy of holies. He has gone into the heavens where 
where God himself is and he is one who sympathizes with us. He knows the difficulties and the trials that we go through because he has experienced trials to the nth degree and temptations to the nth degree. But he is one who has overcome. Therefore, trust in him and hold on to him. And then in chapter 5 he says, for he is ultimately a priest who is now the source of our eternal salvation, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he wants to talk then after that about Jesus being, the significance of Jesus being one after the order of Melchizedek. But then he stops himself and he says, my dear brothers and sisters to the Hebrew Christians, and he says, but you are becoming dull of hearing because of all the difficulties that you are going through, the persecution that is coming your way, and the ease of Judaism, the fact that those who are Jews are not persecuted, and, and your pull towards going back to Judaism. He says, you're becoming dull of hearing. You, you can hear God's word, but it's not really impacting your life, and I'm troubled by that. Because you're still feeding on milk. Just the basic things of, of Christ. In fact, what he says is, I, I fear that you're regressing backwards and you're not moving forward. You're becoming more and more sluggish. And then he goes on to say what the issue with that is. And issues a stronger warning saying, the issue with going backwards is, and he says, because there have been people who've intellectually understood the good news of what God's redemptive plan is. And they've experienced some of the blessedness of the workings of the Holy Spirit. And yet there have been people who have fallen away and have rejected it all. And he says, you don't want to be numbered amongst them. So don't go backwards, keep pushing forwards. And then he encourages them, saying, but, you know, I'm confident that you will keep moving forward and you will keep persevering because God's work is evident in you. As beloved of God, God's love is shown in your lives in that you, you show your love of God by loving others, loving your brothers and sisters. So I'm confident God's work has already begun in you and that work will be completed. And then last week, he went on to then say, and then he went on to say, and therefore just continue to persevere and imitate, in, imitate those who've gone before you. Imitate their faith and patience and ultimately inherit the promises of God. And last week, he focused on the person of Abraham. And he said, remember Abraham? Remember he was at Mount Moriah? And he offered up his son Isaac and after that God came and reiterated the promises to him. And the author now picks up on not all the promises that are reiterated to Abraham in Genesis 22, but he focuses on one aspect of the promise. And it's the seed promise that I will surely multiply you, that I will bless you and multiply you. 
And he says, you see, that came true. At least part of that promise came true in that he got Isaac. And he was certain and he was certain of the fact that Isaac would now continue that seed promise and nothing would happen to Isaac. And his point by implication is, if God has been faithful to keep one part of the promise, then you can be assured that God will keep all of his promises regarding the Abrahamic covenant. And then he goes on to say, because God has not just said his word, but he has promised it, and he has then sworn an oath on top of this. And he says, these are unchangeable things for God. Why? Because God doesn't lie. And so God can't go back on his word. He can't break his promise, nor can he break his oath. This is something that God will accomplish. All his promises will come to pass. And then on top of that, to encourage them, he says, and what you need to know also is that Jesus has gone as a forerunner into the holy of holies. And your hope is like an anchor, and it's anchored onto Jesus. And because you are connected to Jesus, because you're anchored onto Jesus, you can be certain that you're moving there into the Holy of Holies, into the direct presence of God, that you have a place there, and all these promises will be realized as you are anchored in Jesus. And now he comes back then, to the topic of Jesus being the Melchizedekian high priest. Now you can think about this, right? So these are Jewish Christians for the longest time and for, you know, you take their ancestry. They grew up under the Levitical priesthood. This was their family tradition. This is what they were used to. And then now they've heard the good news of Jesus Christ and they were told not then to go to the priest, go to the Levitical priests. In fact, they have only one priest, Jesus, who is the high priest. And now the author is going to prove why Jesus now is a better high priest than this Levitical high priest. And also the fact that these Levitical high priests their function has ceased to be. So don't go back to them. I mean, I just want to remind you again, you know, what is the need for a priest? I, I talked about this a few sermons ago. And the need for the priest is this. Because there is sin between man and God, man no longer has direct access to God. And so God has ordained it that a mediator would come between man and God so that this mediator would then reconcile man to a holy God. And this mediator is nothing but a priest. That's why there's a need for a priest. And so now the author is going to say, so in what way is Jesus a priest and the significance of Jesus being a Melchizedekian high priest. And really two propositions here that he makes. In verses 1 to 10, the proposition that he makes is the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's in verses 1 through 10. 
And then in verses 11 through 19, he makes another proposition. And what he says is the Melchizedekian priesthood replaces the Levitical priesthood. So first one, it's greater than. And the significance of it being greater than is that it has actually replaced the Levitical priesthood. So, so the first proposition, Melchizedekian priesthood, is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Now what the author is talking about is what happened between Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis 14, the Bible reading that we had this morning. And if you know if you want to know all the details of what's going on in Genesis 14, I want to encourage you to listen to that sermon we, uh, from Genesis 14 uh, that was done a couple of years ago. But let me just sum- summarize what's happening in Genesis 14. Four powerful kings of the north under this king named Kedileoma. He had attacked and captured the people and their goods from the smaller regions of the valleys in the Canaanite area. And, they, they, and amongst these people who were captured from uh, the area of the valley in the Canaanite region was Lot, Abraham's nephew. Why? Because Lot at this point was living in Sodom. And Sodom was one of the cities that was captured. So now Abraham, along with his mighty men, go and attack these four powerful kings and rescues Lot and all the other people and bring back, along with the people, their goods. And as he was returning from this war as a, this conquering king, a man named Melchizedek meets him. And there's some interesting things that are noted about Melchizedek. The first thing was that he was both a king and a priest of God Most High. I mean, this was a unique thing. Because if you think of the Israelites, there was no Israelite in the Old Testament that was ever a king and a priest. In fact, the law would that would come many years after Melchizedek, restricted the two offices of king and priest coming together. Why? Because of sin. See, because no single person could be trusted with both offices of priest and king because of man's sinfulness. So for example, in Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah was a king of Israel, he became proud and he thought as a king, oh, you know what, I I can be a priest as well and I can offer sacrifices. And God strikes him down with leprosy so much so that now he becomes unclean. He cannot even come himself to worship God. So these two offices of king and priest couldn't come together in a single person. And yet Melchizedek here was a man who was uniquely a king and a priest. Now the author points out certain other things about Melchizedek. 
Look at the second half of verse 2. He says, he is first, talking about Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Now the name Melchizedek comes from two words, Melech and Sedek. Melech means king, Sedek means righteousness, so therefore king of righteousness. I mean, there's probably another name that you know from the Bible, Malachi. That's a possessive there. That means my king, because Melech means king. And here, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek was a righteous king. He, he was really an upright king compared to all the other Canaanite kings. Now, not only was his name significant, but the fact that he was king of Salem. Now, Salem was another name of what would later be called as Jerusalem. That was the old name of Jerusalem. In fact, uh, Psalm 76.2 uh, confirms this. Now, interestingly though, Salem is a variant of the word shalom. It kind of sounds the same, right? Salem and shalom. It's a variant of that name, shalom, and it means peace. So, so now you can imagine, this was a time in Canaan where the people as well as the kings were exceedingly sinful, exceedingly unrighteous, and which is why even the wars were going on between the kings because of sinfulness. So this Melchizedek stands out uniquely as a king of righteousness and peace. He doesn't go to war with any of this. But also that he is, this is a king and also a priest. So he's quite unique in that sense. Now the author notes something else about Melchizedek from Genesis 14, verse 3. He says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now the book of Genesis, as we've gone through it, is a book of genealogies. Right? So every important person, you get a long line of their family tree. But when this important person named Melchizedek appears on, this, on the scene, who is uniquely a king and priest of God, there's no mention of his genealogy. I mean, it, it, you know, if you were to carry it further, under the Mosaic system, un under the law, only those with a particular genealogy could be priests. To be a priest in Israel, your mother had to be 100% Israelite. Your father had to be an Israelite, and not just an Israelite. He had to be from the tribe of Levi, and not just from the tribe of Levi. He also had to be from the line of Aaron. So there were all these particularities that the, the father needed to be. Only then you could be a priest of Israel. In fact, in the book of Ezra, when the exiles are returning from the land, in Ezra 2, 61 and 62, it's, we read of people who couldn't prove their lineage with their ancestry, that they came from the Levitical tribe and from the line of Aaron, and therefore they weren't allowed to be priests. They couldn't serve as priests as a result. 
So there were limitations on being a priest in Israel. You had to have that particular lineage. And also to serve as a priest, it was, there was limitation of time. It was not forever. Look at Numbers 2, verses 24 to 26. And it says there that the priestly office was limited to those between the age of 25 to 50. So the author picks up all this from Genesis 14, and he says, this man, Melchizedek, he resembles the Son of God. Only a resemblance. He's not equating Melchizedek with the Son of God to be Christ, because some people you know, read this and think of Melchizedek, and they say, oh, you know, Melchizedek was really a pre-incarnate Christ. No, that's not what the author is saying. He's simply saying Melchizedek bears resemblance to Christ. Or you could say Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now, types or patterns are common in the Old Testament, and it points to something greater that will be fulfilled in the New Testament. And we've seen many types and patterns as we've gone through the book of Genesis. You think of how Abraham giving his own son Isaac, you know, how it's described as, Abraham, your son, your only son, the one you love, give him up, offer him as a sacrifice. And over there, Isaac is being typified or prefiguring what God would do to his own son on the cross. You know, the, you think of the Exodus event, for example, when the Jews came out of slavery and they wander in the wilderness and then they enter into the promised land. That was also uh, a typifying something of, of how even us now who have been come out of the slavery of sin are now as wanderers in this land going to that promised land. So there's, there's lots of typology or patterns that are seen in Scripture and it points to something that will be fulfilled later on in history. So what the author is saying is Melchizedek, as a unique kingly priest, served as a type or resembled Christ in certain ways. That he was a faint shadow of Christ who would ultimately come. Now we'll look at ways in which Christ fulfills that role a little bit later in this sermon. But essentially, that's what he says. Melchizedek now resembles Jesus Christ. Now, aside from the fact that Melchizedek has uniquely resembled Christ, now the author is going to say Melchizedek is actually greater than Abraham and even the priests who come from the tribe of Levi by pointing to what happened between Melchizedek and Abraham. Look at what he says, verses 4 through 6. He says, See how great this man was to Abraham, the patriarch. The patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. See, God didn't leave, he didn't give the Levites any land as inheritance when they entered the land. Because they were set apart for service to God. 
They didn't do anything else. So then God instituted under the law given by, through Moses that the Aaronic priests would receive tithes from the people for, this, for their service to the Lord. This is something that was instituted in the law. But this tithe that they would receive from the people, it was only for the Levitical priests. And they would receive these tithes from their fellow Israelites, who were also children of Abraham, just like themselves. So the priests and the other Israelites were all children of Abraham. But what the author is saying is the interesting thing that has happened between Abraham and Melchizedek is, as much as Abraham was a great man, I mean the father of the nation of Israel, he paid tithes to Melchizedek, who was not a Levite, he was not an Israelite, or any kind of son of Abraham. Melchizedek was of a different category, yet the great Abraham pays him a tithe. And in response, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. I mean, can you think about this? This is the great Abraham where God said, in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in and through you. So what does that mean? Abraham was meant to be the source of blessing to everyone else. And yet here is a unique kingly priest, rather than receiving blessing from Abraham, he blesses Abraham with God's blessing. What is the implication then? With Abraham paying tithe and then being blessed by Melchizedek. Implication? Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Not so much in his person, but he's greater in his rule, in his role as a unique royal priest of God. Now the author goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, he says this, It is beyond dispute, so this is the implication, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now, tithes were normally given to the Levitical priests, right? And that priesthood would come to an end. How does that priesthood come to an end? Because once you reach 50 years old, you reach retirement age. So you're no longer a priest anymore. And then eventually, those men would also die. But Abraham paid tithe to a kingly priest who had no limitations on his term as a priest. And there's no mention or record of his death. So in this sense, the Melchizedekian priest lives on. That's the point that the author is trying to make here. I know this is technical. This is probably one of the more technical parts of the book of Hebrews. But just track with me the logic of what he's saying. And then the author also adds, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. See, it's, it's the idea of the father being the representative. 
Remember when Adam fell in the garden? So all in Adam, all those who descended from Adam, which is who? All human beings. They also fell in Adam because Adam was the representative. So similarly, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, then those who descended from Abraham, including the Levitical priesthood, including the Levites that came from Abraham, paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek because Abraham was the representative. So what is this pointing to again? Again, pointing to the fact that the Melchizedekian priesthood is essentially then greater than the Levitical priesthood. Because through Abraham, the Levitical priesthood is paying tithes to Melchizedek. And so the author, what he's doing here is showing the uniqueness and the greatness of Melchizedek. And this Melchizedekian priesthood, it was pointing to a priesthood that Jesus would have. And, and by implication, what he's saying is, and therefore, the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's what he's saying. So Melchizedek, greater than Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek was pointing to Jesus as the ultimate priest. And therefore, Jesus, greater than Levitical priesthood. That's the logic. And when you think about it, when you think of Jesus, yeah, Jesus is one who is now eternally has come as king and priest. Jesus one is one who is completely righteous and without sin. And therefore, he's able to fulfill the role of both king and prophet because he's completely sinless. And the one, he's the one who as king would reign with righteous, with a righteous rule and vanquish all his enemies and establish eternal peace as king. But as eternal priest, he's one who will mediate all of God's blessings to his people and ultimately make them acceptable before God. So there's many ways in which Jesus fulfills that role as Melchizedek was pointing to. Now the Hebrews, being Jewish Christians, you know, at this point they might have some serious questions regarding Jesus being a Melchizedekian priesthood. You know, they could be thinking, okay, so we, I hear what you're saying, that Jesus is this Melchizedekian priest. But we still have the Levitical priesthood. I mean, after all, isn't it God who established the Levitical priests? So why should I concern myself with this Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus? I mean, is it just a matter of, okay, now there's two priesthood, the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood, and we're free to pick one over the other? I mean, why should I go exclusively with Jesus, the Melchizedekian priesthood? And so to answer that, now the author explains himself in verses 11 through 19. And here the proposition is that the Melchizedekian priesthood is not just superior, but it replaces the Levitical priesthood. See, before I get into this, I, I just want to establish one thing. 
About a thousand years after Melchizedek's interaction with Abraham, the first Israelite king of Jerusalem, remember this was king of Salem or king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, but the first Israelite king of Jerusalem was David. And David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes a messianic psalm, which is Psalm 110. And this is what he says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 110, verse 4. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, This is what the Messiah will be. He won't just be king, but he will also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, think about this. At this point, the Levitical priesthood is set up. David is there, and the Levitical priests are still going on. But David knows exactly a Levitical priest cannot be a king. People have tried that. They've gotten into trouble. In fact, even in future, people will try it. They will get into trouble. But David says, as he thinks about Melchizedek, and then as he thinks of the about Messiah, the ultimate rule that God will send, that he will not only be an eternal king, but he will also be an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. Two offices of king and priest combined in God's ultimate ruler, the Messiah who is going to come. And it's not just David who says this about the Messiah. In fact, the prophets also talk about this, that the Messiah would hold the office of king and priest. Listen to what uh, the prophet Ezekiel says. You know, turbans were worn by priests and crowns were, were worn by the kings. And listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 21, 26 and 27. Let me just consolidate what he's saying there. He's saying, in the coming judgment, where the kingdom of Judah would fall, and it would be made desolate, he's saying God was going to remove the turban and the crown, meaning God was going to remove the priesthood and the kingship altogether from Israel. And then what is he going to do? He's going to give the crown and the turban to one person. The one person who can rule them all. The one who will come to judge and rule. To him will be given the crown and the turban. Look at again Zechariah 6 verses 12 and 13. It talks about a branch. You know, even in the book of Isaiah, it talks about this righteous branch, and that's referring to the Messiah. And specifically in Zechariah 6 and verse 13, it says about the branch or the Messiah, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear a royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So what does that sound like? A king, right? So the Messiah will be a king and he will sit on his throne that way. And then it says, and there shall be a priest, or you could even say, and he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So meaning, there's one person who has two offices, this Messiah who's going to come. He shall be king, and he shall be priest. And the council of peace shall be between these two offices, between king and priest. 
That's the point that Zechariah is making about the Messiah that is going to come. Jeremiah also talks about the branch, the Messiah, the final ruler, and that he too will be a king and a priest. So the Messiah, the final ruler that God will send, is one who will be both king and priest. And according to Psalm 10, David has said, the kingly priest will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not just any priest, but a Melchizedekian priest. So now, if this has already been said about this final messianic ruler, the author now poses a question. Look at verse 11 now. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? You see his logic there? I mean, if everything was okay with the Levitical priesthood, why is it that it's talked about that the Messiah would come after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of the Levitical priesthood? And he says, if perfection had been attainable. What does he mean by perfection? Well, perfection in this book is used in the sense of completion. And we've seen this before, right? Jesus was made perfect through suffering we saw in the previous chapters. What does that mean? That Jesus completed his job through suffering. Here, the perfection or the completion, it refers to the completion of God's plan of salvation. Everything that the author has been talking about in the past few chapters. This would include what is God's complete plan of salvation? It would include forgiveness of sins, being made righteous, it would also include entering into God's rest, being crowned with glory and honor in God's kingdom and reigning over the earth. And ultimately, it's that whole package of being reconciled with God and being in his direct presence. All of that is that complete package of God's plan of salvation. So the author is saying, if the Levitical priesthood could bring about perfection, could complete, could perfect the plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation and everything that it entailed, then why did God say in Psalm 110 that the Messiah, the final ruler, would be a royal priest after the order of Melchizedek and not simply someone from Aaron's line? Implication? The Levitical system could not get the job done. The Levitical priesthood could not bring about the completion of God's plan of salvation. It did not actually reconcile people to God and bring them into the presence of God and everything else that it entails. In fact, it was never meant to do that. It was only meant to be a foreshadow of what Christ would bring about in reality. And now precisely because there's a change in priesthood with Christ, the author goes on to argue, verse 12, for when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So the Levitical priesthood and God's law given through Moses, they were closely connected. See, because 
at the heart of the Israelites' relationship with God, there was this mediator, this Levitical priest. It was priests who taught the law of God to the people of Israel. They didn't have the scriptures like we do in our homes. So the priests were needed. The Israelites could not offer sacrifices to God for their sin if there were no priests. And there were other regulations of the law as well that could not be carried out without the priests. So the Levitical priesthood was essential to the, for the law. And the author is arguing if there's been a change in the priesthood, because now it's the Melchizedekian priesthood, that's who Christ has come after, then it means then the law also has been changed. The law that is given under Moses is no longer in effect. There is a new system in place. Now the author is going to show how the Mosaic law is no longer in effect and something new is in its place. Look at verses 13 and 14. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served as the, at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And yes, God promised that the ultimate king would come from the line of Judah. And Jesus certainly fulfills that. But no one under the law of Moses came from the tribe of Judah and then served as a priest. It wasn't possible. Why? Because the law said that the priest would have to come from the tribe of Levi. So it was just absolutely not possible. So Jesus is a priest of a different order. The author goes on to say, verses 15 through 17, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it, it is witnessed of him, this is again that quote from Psalm 110:4, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author says, this becomes even more evident. What? The change in the priesthood, and therefore there's a change in the law and a new system in its place. And what that means is there are now new requirements for the priest. And that's what the author is showing us from these verses, that there's a change in the priesthood that means a change in the law and therefore a change in the requirements of a priest. See, because under the law, again, the qualification to become a priest was that if your father was a priest, obviously from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron. If your father was a priest, then you would become a priest and your son would become a priest and your son's son would become a priest. So to become a Levitical priest, all you needed was the right lineage. There was no intrinsic qualifications that the person had to have to become a priest. But for Jesus, the qualification to become a priest was much higher. He became a priest by the kind of life he had, by the power of an indestructible life, the author says. So when you think about it, all the Levitical priests, they died. But Jesus, he triumphed over death, 
and therefore his life will never come to an end. It can never be destroyed. And this is what qualified Jesus to become this royal priest, this royal priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so in this way, the author is saying, Jesus is that final Messiah, that final ruler, who is both king and priest of a new order, of a better order, and he lives forever. Now the author concludes his thought saying, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. Let me just stop there. So his conclusion is, because he's describing the change of the law now, and he's describing it as a former commandment that is being set aside, a former regulation that has been set aside. Why? Why has it been set aside? The author says, because of its weakness. What does he mean by weakness? Means that it has limitations. What is the limitation of the law that was prescribed before? Well, the limitation of the law was that it can only teach you. It can teach you about God. It can teach you about His promises. It can teach you about His purposes. It can teach you about His desires. It can teach you about His standards and therefore what is right and wrong and a, a, a need for a Savior. It can point to all these things, but the law can't perfect anything. It can't complete God's plan of redemption. In that sense, it is useless. The law is only meant to point and teach about God and His ways, but it was never meant to bring about the completion of God's work of salvation. That's his point, and that's why it has been set aside. Just a side note here. So what this means is, it's not that when we look at the law of God in the Old Testament, therefore we say, oh, it's useless, just throw it away. No, there's plenty of things we can, it still teaches us. It teaches us about God's promises. It teaches us about God's character. It teaches us about his desires and about right and wrong. So the law is still good. But it's useless in that it cannot bring complete God's work of salvation. It cannot bring perfection in that sense. But on the other hand, because it has been laid aside, and through Jesus, the final Messiah, a new system is in place, the author says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope by which we draw near to God. Now what is this drawing near to God? I mean, sure, in one sense, it's the fact that we have been forgiven and we come before the presence of God. But I want to point out a, a, a little nuance in that. Because whenever this term of drawing near is used, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's language of priests. So what the author is saying is that in the end, because of who Jesus is, he's a better priest, a priest that is forever a kingly priest, He's brought about a better system and therefore a better hope. And the better hope is this. That you and I who have put their trust in Jesus will all become priests 
of the Almighty God. That you will have that kind of relationship with God. No one else in history, in Old Testament history, had that kind of relationship with God. Where they could come into the very direct presence of God and be accepted like that, other than Adam in the garden. No one else had that. And yet, what he's saying is, for you, this is going to be that reality. You're going to have that kind of intimate relationship. You're all going to be priests of God, those who have trusted in Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate ruler, the ultimate king-priest, the one who has established a new system, and therefore a better hope, and holds out this endearing relationship of being priests of God and being in his presence forever. I know there was a lot of technical stuff there, but I want to leave you with this as I close. Do you understand why now that Jesus had to be a royal priest, a king and a priest, do you understand why? See, because if he was only a king, if the Messiah was only a king, sure, the authors talked about he'll be a king who will come and establish a new kingdom, a new creation. He will rule over all. There'll be righteousness and peace and joy and so on and so forth. That's great. And he's a righteous king. But if that's all he is, how do you get into that kingdom? You still need a mediator, right? And that's why he has to be a priest as well, because your sin has to be dealt with. The blessings of God then has to flow through this mediator, and he enables you to then be in his kingdom, and as king, he vanquishes all his enemies. So on the one side, he vanquishes all his enemies, he protects you, and he will keep you in his kingdom as a king. But then as a priest, he deals with your sin. He makes you acceptable before God, and all the blessings that God has promised comes in and through this mediator of God. See, because if he was just a priest, and that's why the need for a royal priest, because just a priest can't complete this work of salvation. You know, at most, at most, he could maybe deal with your sin issue, perhaps, as a representative. But he can't protect you from his enemies. He can't protect you and keep you in his kingdom and ensure his sovereign rule over you and his righteous rule over you. And that's why he is now a royal priest, a kingly priest, one who guards you, one who keeps you, one who establishes a sovereign, righteous rule, vanquishing all his enemies, preserves you inside, and then makes you, makes you acceptable to enter into his presence, to enter into his kingdom, and receive all the blessings and the promises of God. That's why Jesus is a royal priest. That's why he's a Melchizedekian priest. That's why he's a better priest. And this priest has therefore then annulled the Levitical priesthood. So then to the 
listeners at that time, the Jewish Christians, he's saying, so don't go back to the Levitical priests. No, they're not going to accomplish this complete plan of salvation. To accomplish complete plan of salvation, you have to be king and priest. And you have to be a priest of a different order who lives forever. Now, we might not be tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood. But perhaps, you know, we might be tempted to what still, what we see with our eyes, right? Because at that time, all they could see was the Levitical priests. Jesus was, they were trusting him by faith as this kingly priest. So we can have those tendencies of going back to trust in some of the things that we see for our security, for our hope, for when there's turmoil in this world, when there's war in this world, there's difficulties in this world, to go back to certain things that we can see with our eyes and then hold on to that rather than holding on to Jesus by faith who is the king priest who will absolutely accomplish God's full plan of salvation. And so that's the call for us, and may we recognize Jesus to be that Messiah, the priest-king, who will accomplish God's full plan of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even these difficult doctrinal truths even what the author of Hebrews said, this is solid meat that he was wanting to teach the Hebrew Christians off. And Lord, we pray that what we have seen today, we would appreciate the beauty of your plan of from ages past how the law and the Levitical system pointed to what you would do in and through your son. And yet, there was also this mysterious figure, this royal priest, who would supersede them all, who was also pointing to Jesus Christ, the ultimate ruler, the king priest, and as king and priest, who alone could accomplish all of God's plan of salvation. We thank you that it is in Christ that this plan is achieved. And so help us not to turn to things that we we may see with our eyes for hope and for security in this world, but we would continue to trust in Jesus by faith, that he is our king and our priest who protects us and guides us and makes us acceptable before you. Lord, may, we, may these truths sink deep into our hearts and may it cause us to continue to persevere in the faith by holding on to Jesus. We ask all this for the glory and honor of Jesus. Amen.